to another episode of Toho Yaro, a monthly Japanese film club podcast. I'm your host for this month, Scott Dryman, and with me as always are Joey Weiser. Hello, hello. And Alex Kazanis. Hello, hello, hello. Uh, for October, we are doing a, a spooky, scary movie, kind of, <laughs> in uh, 1964's uh, Kaidan. Or Kaidan, right? Kaidan. Oh, it's pronounced uh, Kaidan? Shit. Yes. Uh, it's it, it, interesting story. Uh, the, the W in the title actually comes from an archaic uh, romanization from when Lafcadio O'Hearn uh, wrote the book that this movie is based on. Oh, wow. So the, the actual uh, kanji for the title are, are Kai and Don. Kai meaning weird or strange, and Don meaning story, specifically a kind of like oral story. Um, uh, Kai Don together obviously means strange story or in context ghost story. Uh, modern Japanese horror stuff is either referred to as hara or... Uh, uh, Kawai Hanashi, which is just scary story. Uh, Kaidan specifically is an archaic term, and when used in modern contexts, tends to specifically reference uh, old Japanese folklore. So stories about spirits and yokai and whatnot. Ah, interesting. Uh, so uh, this movie was directed by Masaki Kobayashi, who is also well-known for his... Uh, three-part, nine-hour-plus movie series, The Human Condition, about a pacifist in the uh, uh, Japanese army in China during World War II. Oh, yeah, I believe that has been recommended to us. Uh, Mm -hmm. Quite a uh, thing to tackle, though. (laughs) Yeah, I'd like to see it someday, but there's just so much of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's also uh, well-known for the movies uh, Hardakiri and Samurai Rebellion. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, which also seemed really neat. Uh, Kobayashi is a pretty interesting director, and we'll get into that a little more uh, in a minute. But I'd like to highlight the uh, writers of this. The screenplay is written by a woman named Yoko Mizuki, who uh, also she's uh, has a few other movie credits under her belt. Uh, one interesting that I thought that I would highlight is uh, Kiku to Isamu, which is about uh, a brother and sister who are half black, half Japanese um, children of a prostitute and American GI and uh, is a very early movie that actually examines kind of race issues in Japan. Hmm. The, uh, so this, as I said earlier, the, the stories in this are adapted from a book of Japanese folk tales compiled by a Western author named Lafcadio Hearn. Lafcadio Hearn is a pretty interesting character. He is the son of uh, uh, Greek and Irish folks who lived all over the world, originally in Greece, then Ireland, then London, moving to Cincinnati, uh, then to New Orleans, where he uh copied down a lot of oral traditions of New Orleans and history of the city, which he's still pretty well known for today before moving uh, 
to uh, Martinique and then eventually Japan. And he was interested throughout his life of telling people stories and compiling folklore and uh, decided that Japan had such a rich kind of uh, history of folktales that were so different from Western folktales that he decided to write them down and kind of render them for a Western audience. Mm. Uh, these were pre- very popular at the time. Uh, I did not write down dates of when this was written. Um, I believe uh, around uh, turn of the century. That would make sense. Um, a little after, I believe. Uh, but these these stories, which he he compiled the a lot of these stories from his. Uh, he he married a Japanese woman. He got some from her. Some from uh, from just walking around talking to people, and some he actually sought out trying to to uh, find the history and nail down these stories. And as I said, he rendered them for a Western audience, so he changed a lot of things to f- more fit with the cadence of Western storytelling. But uh, oddly enough, uh, once he wrote these, they ended up becoming uh, imported back into Japan where his versions of the stories became popular and are kind of like the the canon versions to a lot of uh, Japanese people. Oh, that's interesting. Which I, I feel like is uh, maybe part of why they uh, there's a kind of like Twilight Zone cadence to some of these stories <laughs> that, that feels very common to our sensibilities. Yeah. But... Uh, uh, Kobayashi actually let uh, Mizuki pick the stories to localize or to uh, to adapt for this. She picked two stories from his from uh, Lafcadio Hearn's book Kwaidan and two from other collections that he wrote. And uh, she picked ones that she thought highlighted uh, the the kind of humanity within these stories that are tales of the supernatural, but trying to uh, use them as a reflection to the human condition. Um, uh, next is the music uh, composed by Toru Takamitsu who uh, also notably composed Ron and in addition to a bunch of film scores he was actually an incredibly well-known uh, composer of, uh, of just uh, classical style music and a bunch some uh, more avant-garde but uh, his, his compositions range far outside just film scores but I'd like to highlight what he did in this movie especially because he uses it's less a score and more of kind of just a, com- a complete soundscape. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that. Um, yeah. You it, want to yeah. talk about the opening credits for a second? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, the uh, going into the uh, uh, opening credits, uh, scroll down my notes. Oh, uh, I just, I just wanted to mention that like I had, this is just kind of a funny anecdote uh, that I, um, it was the first time using this new uh, player on my computer to play uh, this movie, and I had the sound on my computer turned all the way up, but the player's volume was turned all the way down, and <laughs> then I was like, oh, no, there's no music, so then I turned it up, and it was still oh, no. so, like, stark. I was like, is it? Is, what's going on here? And I had to actually, like, uh, scrub around, and I was like, okay, well, there's m- there's sound in this movie, and then once I sort of, like, 
sat down to listen to it again, I realized that it was just this very, you know, sparse, uh, you know, soundscape thing, like you're saying. Yeah, the 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 titles to this are uh, intercutted intercuts of the title and then credits with swirling ink and water, first black and then different colors. But yeah, it's just a uh, very stark silence and occasionally bells. Mm-hmm. And uh, silence gets used a lot throughout the movie in general. And stark is a good word for for pretty much everything. Um, he uses a lot of there. There is music in this, but he also uses a lot of uh, of just kind of odd noises and and sound effects created with instruments and and. Uh, a few other uh, tools at his disposal to, like I said, make this really kind of alien soundscape that, that gets used through a lot of the movie and the use of silence. And in the first story, the kind of disconnect between what the audience hears and what's going on in the screen is used to interesting effect. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, Takamitsu is a, is a good example of how, uh, 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 Kobayashi kind of did everything he did for the movie because he was a very, uh, he's not hands off, but he was uh, very willing to delegate uh, the way things worked where he had an idea for things he wanted in the production and would outline those things, but then send those ideas off to the people in charge of them and let those people kind of take care of the minutia and come back and uh, present him with what they did. And he would decide then whether he liked it or not, or what he wanted to change. Uh, so notably, uh, whereas he was pretty particular about the costume design and the human condition, apparently for, for this film, he went through a bunch of art books and cut out pictures and, use those as a, as a collage and a scrapbook to decide the kind of like color palette that he wanted for each of these vignettes. Hmm. Yeah. They are very distinct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, and so like, as I said, he would, uh, he had this scrapbook, but then instead of picking how he wanted those colors used and how he wanted the, each costume to look, he would, uh, give that information to his assistant directors and the, the set design people and say, this is the palette that I want. And, and just use your own judgment to decide how to use those colors. Interesting. Um, which I don't, I don't remember if I've mentioned yet, this is a film of multiple, uh, vignettes. Um, each of them has their own kind of, uh, uh feel to it. Uh, the production for this movie was really interesting. It was originally uh, is produced by a, uh, an independent studio, Ninjin Club, which uh, I believe uh, Kobayashi owns or was was uh, part owner of. And it was going to be distributed by a studio, Shokichu, or Shok- Shochiku, uh, which had distributed the human condition, but uh, immediately before they started filming, but after they had already paid actors, Shochiku pulled out of production and uh, demanded repayment on their loans. And uh, Toho stepped in as distributor, but the filming began production in serious debt to its previous financer. Oh, interesting. And uh, 
Toho, knowing that uh, Kobayashi was notoriously slow at creating movies, would only dole out money as he finished segments of it and took out a, a hundred million yen insurance policy on the prints of the film. Uh, the film itself was formed was filmed in an incredibly uh, long uh, storage hangar used for Nissan cars at the time. Uh, they rented out this gigantic space, and the movie itself ended up costing over a hundred million yen, with up to three hundred thousand dollars or three hundred thousand yen a day on smoke machines during certain scenes. <laughs> that was very um, essential. And uh, as they were filming the the final segment. Uh, they ran out of money again, and Kobayashi himself took out a $10 million loan to pay out of pocket uh, for the staff and actors' day-to-day work so they could finish the movie. Wow. Um, but uh, as as troubled as the financial side of production was, it seems like a lot uh, because of his kind of delegation style, it seems like a lot of the production staff had a, a good time working on this film. Um. There ended up being three different cuts of this film. The one that's the the Criterion version that is on uh, that I watched is 183 minutes long. It sure is. It is a very long movie. There's an intermission in the middle, but it's easy to break this up into the into each of its segments and take breaks in between. Uh, he tried to show it at the Cannes Film Festival after it finished production. But Can that year had a strict rule of no films over two hours. Hmm. Uh, he tried to trim it down and made a 161-minute cut, uh, hoping that that would be enough, which Can refused. And then uh, eventually did a 125-minute cut, which completely cut out uh, the entire uh, Yuki Ona segment of the film, which uh, is was the most popular of. Uh, it, that that got screened at the U.S. Uh, that one did make it into Cannes, but it didn't win anything. But uh, that version also ended up being the most popular version in uh, in Japanese theaters as well, probably because it was the easiest one to f- fit into segments in theaters. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, since I mean, you could do more bad. showings of it. Yeah. Uh, but now they we have uh, a fully restored version of the original cut available to us. So. Um, so going through each of, each of these segments, uh, and because of the structure of it, I'm going to break up, uh, do a, a very short synopsis of each segment and the actors in each individual one. And, uh, we're going to discuss them. All right. So the first segment is, uh, Kurokami, the black hair, um, for a uh, notable cast in this, the uh, his the uh, husband's first wife is played by uh, Michio Aratama, who is th- uh, the lead from The Human Condition. Um, Kobayashi likes working with a lot of the same people throughout a bunch of his films, and so a lot of people from The Human Condition ended up in this. Uh, the husband is Rintaro Mikuni, who people uh, or listeners may recognize as Marhachi from Miyamoto Musashi. Oh. Uh, yeah. Uh, so the story of uh, Kurokami is a young samurai. Is uh, His uh, lord has been driven to ruin, and because of that, the samurai has no work and is being impoverished and decides to leave his wife and move to another region to try to find work. 
uh, his wife begs and pleads with him to stay uh, and offers to work harder weaving to make money for them so they can leave. And he throws off his wife uh, and forsakes her to uh, go work in this other province for uh, a governor and leaves. Uh, shortly thereafter, he marries the governor's daughter uh, to advance. As we see more of his his new wife, she's being carried around on a palanquin and is eyeing silks and just looks very uh, haughty. And while this is going on, he has regrets and dreams of his first wife. Uh, and uh, eventually his, his new marriage uh, kind of falls to ruin as he spurns his new wife and rushes back home to his original one. Uh, finding his uh, impoverished former home even more dilapidated than when he left it, and but finds his wife weaving in her room, which is still intact. Uh, they share one last passionate night together, and he wakes up to find uh, her body next to him rapidly decaying into nothing but a, uh, a mass of black hair as the room decays around him. Uh, the hair attacks him, and as he stumbles through the house trying to escape, he visibly ages in front of us as well till he finally escapes the house and but the uh, the hair is waiting for him and attacks him and we end on a really silly freeze frame <laughs> yep um I'd so say, oh go ahead uh no, you can go i was just going to say that like this of the four is kind of the most traditionally of what i think of as a ghost story you know uh, or maybe just from a Western perspective where it, it's the most kind of like scary man being attacked by a ghost kind of thing. Um, yeah, it's, it, it is, is very much a like scary tale and less of a just kind of weird story. Mm-hmm. Um, some notable things I'd like to talk about is the, the very first shot in this is this, what, uh, Upon further study is very clearly a set of this rundown, uh, I, I guess, like what would pass as a mansion with uh, cattails and all kinds of plants growing up around it as it's gone into disrepair. But this this set is so incredibly lush and and full. Uh, you can it, it, it's impressive that they seem to have built this completely from scratch inside that hangar. And uh, also sets the tone with what is clearly a uh, matte painting of a temple off in the distance. But uh, the the kind of the use of matte paintings in this, I think, uh, are not intended to look realistic. Uh, Kobayashi himself talks about wanting to go intentionally wanting to go with a more stylized look for this movie than the realism of the human condition and bordering on the surreal at many points. And uh, it, it reminded me a lot of kind of like stage dressing. Yeah, uh, for sure. Uh, did you guys have anything to say about the, the kind of first yeah. impressions? Yeah. Um, one thing that really struck me about this, well, it struck me about this and um, uh, the the following two. The, uh, the skies are painted really, really like, uh, like surreally, like yeah. very psychedelic. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point where I wasn't at first sh- sure if um, like he was indoors or not, or supposed to be indoors. It was it was throwing me off a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but this this particular story, uh, I, I I'm inclined to agree with Joey, but like from a 
I guess, Japanese ghost story point of view. Like, I kind of knew where this was going, like, right from the get-go. I'm like, ah, yeah, he's going to go away, come back after years. She's going to be there, but it's not going to be her. It's going to be, like, a grudge ghost or whatever. Yeah. Uh, Which I... be attacked by a wig. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, in a lot of ways, I think, because in large part because it's the first story and kind of expectations haven't been fully set. Uh, And as you said, kind of thematically, this is the most traditional ghost story. I think it's also the scariest of the, of each of the vignettes in this. Yeah. Uh, Especially once he returns home to the even more dilapidated house, just like slowly walking through all these places that are falling apart and like the kind of dread of like, what's he going to find here? Yeah. yeah, and even once he finds her, there's a creepiness to there being a room that's actually kind of uh, well-kept, and she's just sitting alone in a completely destroyed house and hasn't aged and stuff. That's, you know, these are all red flags. <laughs> for yeah, ghosts, yes. You know? um, uh, yeah, the, there's, like, palpable tension in, in all those scenes as you're like, when when is the shoe going to drop here? And then when he's um, actually attacked, like as much as I'm joking, I mean, it's kind of silly to see him see them kind of dangling a uh, a wig at him or whatever. But the effects of him aging are very creepy um, and I think adds to the terror. Uh, yeah, they were yeah. kind of um, they're kind of subtle at first. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't sure if it's like, oh, is his face white because like he's just wearing, I don't know, like <laughs> just wearing makeup from uh you know, being with his new mm-hmm. potty wife or uh, or is it because he's he's aging for some reason? Uh, uh, that yeah, that's wasn't really made clear. Uh, it's something that is pretty consistent through each of these vignettes that as the supernatural takes its toll on all these people as it as it touches them, some more rapidly than others. But the more people interact with these uh, otherworldly things you uh in this it's pretty rapid from scene to scene but you it starts off you can tell that he's got s- slight circles under his eyes his skin is a little pale and and for him it progresses rapidly going from from scene to scene where first he looks pale then he looks almost sick to, to just aging rapidly as his hair falls out, he gets his face is covered in wrinkles and everything. Um, and the the scene where he's running from the uh, from from the hair stylistically is really interesting. As he's stumbling through the house that's falling apart, he's kicking his leg through boards and everything. The sound design in that is so disconnected from what's actually happening. Like we occasionally hear sounds of. Uh, the the uh, boards breaking, but we can't hear him at all. It's just stark silence with uh, what starts out as buzzing and as a kind of low drone in the background as he is just filled with terror uh, with a Dutch angle going down the hall. And the whole thing is just so weird and otherworldly. Uh, but eventually that buzzing does kind of uh, kick up into... A, uh, a kind of menacing music. Yeah. Um, I thought the, the creepiest thing about it was um, was the sound of her weave weaving utensil or loom, whatever. Yeah, the, the clacking. Yeah, that that I thought was creepy right from the get-go. I was like, oh boy, this is gonna <laughs> this is gonna <laughs> send a chill down my spine the whole time, isn't it? 
and it did. Yeah, and I I think this uh, Kurokami does a. I don't think any of the stories are are nearly as scary. I think because you know where the beats are coming and it's less spooky, but it does kind of give you a good sense to the pacing and the buildup that each of these vignettes have. Um, and uh, going from that buzzing, menacing music and the 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 final freeze frame is a bit of an odd decision where they decided to stop it because uh, he's kind of making a weird face. Uh, but the strange droning music cuts out and we transition into the next scene of uh, Yuki Ona, the snow maiden and a, not the same, but a similar kind of uh, menacing music slowly kicks in as we watch a forest uh, in the snow uh, get uh, it's, it's a snow covered forest, but then a blizzard kicks in and they just cover everything with snow uh in a aggressive degree as the, uh, the matte painting gets, gets crazy behind it and an eye appears. And that's when I kind of realized that, Oh, we are, we are not supposed to find these matte paintings to be super realistic or representative. They're supposed to be, uh, uh, surreal in this way. Um, but, uh, the story of, of Yukiona, which I feel like is probably the, best known story across uh, just general uh, Japanophiles and, mm-hmm. and anime fans. Um, uh, two woodsmen are uh, uh, Misaku and Minokichi are uh, wandering through the forest and get trapped in the blizzard. Uh, stumbling around, uh, you begin to see this uh, as the snow kicks up more, the horizon is just covered in these weird eyes uh, as, as they're being watched by these malicious powers, uh, kind of causing the the blizzard. But eventually, they get to a boatman's hut with no boat to to cross the river. But they barricade themselves inside, and uh, uh, as Minokichi is laying there, suddenly the Yuki Ona appears. Yuki Ona uh, appears and breathes frost onto the old man, killing him. But spares Minokichi because he is young and handsome. <laughs> Uh, she, but she makes uh, Minokichi promise to tell no one. Uh, oh, I skipped over the the cast for this. Uh, the uh, the 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 notable cast I have for this is the uh, uh, Minokichi uh, is uh, Tatsuya Nakadai, who is also in the the Human Condition uh, as uh, the 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 male lead in that. But he also appears in Yojimbo and Senjuro as a villain. Uh, but uh, Minokichi promises not to tell anybody and, and the Yuki Onnes spares him. The next morning, the boatman returns, finding them still barricaded inside, which uh, they were not when the, when the woman showed up. Uh, Minokichi ends up back at his mother's house recovering. Uh, a year later, he's back out working in the woods when he meets a young lady on the road who uh, calls herself Yuki and is very clearly the same actress as Yuki Ona, which it's, uh, I just, these are, these are folk tales and it's not supposed to be like actually suspenseful, but it is a little on the nose that uh, the, the girl's name is snow 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But uh, as as uh, he's walking her, she's on her way to Edo. Uh, but he invites her to stay back at his his place with the uh, with his mother. We also get some more foreshadowing as to the the sinister nature of this lady as they're he's leading her home. More eyes appear in the background, even though there's no blizzard. And so we kind of get portent as if her name was not enough. But uh, he invites her to spend the night. She does, and uh, but she never makes it to Edo. They fall in love and eventually have three children together. And uh, years later, with their three kids, they're relaxing at home near the New Year. And has a Minokichi catches a brief glimpse of Yuki that reminds him of the the Yuki Ona, and uh, he's like, "Oh, this reminds me of that night." Where he tells the story of the Yukiona to Yuki, and she I reveals wrote, herself. Oh, yeah, I wrote, I wrote down in my notes during this part. What an idiot! Yeah, <laughs> I know, man. I you just have to kind of maybe write it off that it had been so many years that I don't know that the the warning of not supposed to tell anyone about this, you know, had sort of like faded from his memory. But uh, yeah, the whole time you're just going like, no, no, no. <laughs> That's not something I would forget. Right. Like she explicitly tells him, uh, if you tell anybody about this, uh, I will find you and I will kill you. Yeah. <laughs> not unlike a uh, a ghostly female Liam Neeson. I feel like because he's just telling the same person that was already there, it shouldn't really count. But I don't make the rules. <laughs> so, uh, but as he's he's telling this story. Yuki very clearly is incensed and then outraged as she reveals herself to actually be the Yuki Onna and threatens to kill Minikichi and make good on her promise, but then thinks better of it as she looks at their children and says that uh, he has to keep their children happy and well or she'll murder him, Uh, which I guess is a pretty good compromise versus just being murdered. Sure. but uh, but then she uh, leaves, running out into the blizzard as it appears, and uh, Minikichi shortly rushes back out to leave her New Year's sandals that he had been making for her, uh, sh- clearly showing that he he really did and still does love her. Uh, leaves the sandals outside and runs back inside to to weep at the loss of his wife, and uh, the story ends as we watch the sandals. Uh, slowly disappear into nothing outside in the blizzard, showing that she has taken this gift. Uh, what were you gonna say? Oh yeah, um, I was I was just gonna give my thoughts, uh, really really quick about this this one. It, it seemed like I know this is the most like well, this is the the story that I'm the most familiar with, as you, as you mentioned. Like, if you watch anime or play video games, there is a very good chance that you've heard of the Yuki Onna. Um, and, uh, I think this is my first time actually, like, being exposed to this story, uh, you know, the original story as it is, and it's weird, like, is the Yukiona a ghost, or, like, a, a witch, or, like, if it can bear children, and then, like, care about the children as, like, so much that, like, oh, well, I'm gonna squelch on the rules of of being a, a snow woman like 
Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, that's a question of like, how do you define what a yokai is? It's just a sort of like supernatural being. Yeah. But it's yeah. almost like like the whole thing where, you know, their relationship starts with a threat to kill him and ends with a threat to kill him. It's like it's almost like keeping a wild animal like you can kind of domesticate. Uh, it can sort of be domesticated, but then that, you know, watch out because uh, she she's a killer, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think it. it it uh, trips up on a lot of our modern Western sensibilities of what a like ghost or spirit is where we've compartmentalized a lot of things and there are specific rules about how uh, those things work. But uh, yokai are, are a more kind of like bigger, wilder mass of supernatural stuff. And so I, I kind of like the idea that she could kind of take this turn at being at having a normal human life, but she is still this thing and still has to, to kind of live by her own rules of what that is. Right. And, uh, that it was this, this detente and her love that was, uh, keeping him safe. I think, uh, it would be interesting to see a, a variation of the story where you see what happens after the fact, like, mm. where did she go? Um, like, what what now becomes of her? Right, and if she encounters other people, how how her perspective on humans has changed, or something like that. Yeah. Or is this the first time she's lived this life? Yeah, that's that's also true. Or like, I also thought about this. Like, doesn't does that make her kids like half yokai? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's unclear. They can walk amongst the yokai. <laughs> yeah, like this is like this is the um the first chapter of a new jump comic or something. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it focuses of course on a half yokai uh half yokai kid. Yeah. Uh, and I I think there's a big contrast between this and the first story where the the husband in uh, Kurokami is getting his comeuppance for being a horrible person even though he still loves his wife. It's it, it's tragic but you feel less sympathy whereas this like this is a bad ending for everybody and nobody wants it, but it's just kind of the way things have to happen, which give it a like kind of more mythical tone to me that like mm-hmm. at these, these things are out of our control and this is the way it has to be, even though we don't want this because it's very clear that like the Yuki Ona Yuki married this man and had kids with him whom she loves and very clearly was, was, outraged that he ruined this by telling her the story and uh and uh, minokichi like runs outside to give her those new year's sandals that he'd been working so hard for because he still loves her and, and wants this gift and you you just think that like he could why didn't he just like beg her to stay and yeah. and keep things the way they were but that i th- think they both know that that's that's not how this works uh yeah uh- of the of the four stories, I'd say this is the one I had the biggest kind of like emotional connection to, mm-hmm. uh, because it's about sort of interpersonal connections between the characters, even if it's ghost and person, uh, more so even than the the first one really was. I think, um, um, so yeah, I think it stands out in that way. Yep, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about how this particular vignette looks. Uh, the matte paintings, I think, uh, play the biggest part in this one as it also has, I think some of the like 
craziest sets with mm-hmm. uh, like Minikichi's house and like this this huge surrounding forested area that they had to construct. Uh, but especially just those eyes in any of the scenes with the blizzard or when uh, when she shows up and the contrast from those uh, those like blue colors with occasional hints of just red to when it's no longer winter and the skies are, are all these pink and oranges mm-hmm. uh, and uh, especially the something that struck me as being kind of, I don't know if it was supposed to feel out of place in nightmarish, but when uh, Yuki and Minikichi first fall in love running through the fields and then make love uh, it's under this weird kind of uh, representation of the sun uh, painted out of squares and pink and orange. And it just looks so wrong to me. <laughs> um, yeah. The skies, I totally, yeah. The skies really stood out to me in this one being beautiful and strange. Uh, I'd also like to point out there's another movie where we have some, uh, some tree cutting going on, although this looks uh, a little <laughs> cheesy in comparison. The speed at which that uh, tree is gently lowered down. Yeah, I definitely noticed his technique. Uh, <laughs> starting on one side and then working the other. Uh, and uh, a- a- another uh, thing that shows up very prevalently here is the use of colored lighting. Whenever when he starts seeing Yuki as the Yukiona, it's uh, there's this the room is flooded with this blue light that uh, hits her so she looks like she's still got the makeup on from when she was uh, as the Yukiona. Uh, and then something that was very interesting to me is when Minukichi rushes back inside from the blizzard after dropping off the sandals uh, and, and leans on the corner of the floor weeping, it's a very high angle and we get this uh, full-on kind of like spotlight stage lighting Uh uh, which is is really interesting and and leads to both the kind of surrealism and the the sense that this is a, a stage play almost. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else about uh, Yuki Onna? Nope, I'm good. All right. Uh, next is my personal favorite out of these is uh, Miminashi Hoichi no Hanashi, or the uh, the story of Earless Hoichi. Uh, Hoichi is a blind Biwahoshi. Uh, we mentioned in the Zatoichi episode that a lot of uh, blind folks in older Japan were trained as masseuses. Uh, one of the other common trades that they were taught was how to play the uh, the Biwa, uh, a stringed instrument, and tell stories, most commonly uh, stories of uh, from the tale of the Heike. Uh, the Heike or Taira clan and the Genji or Minamoto clan uh, are a uh, frequently described as kind of the, as Japan's version of the Iliad, this uh, big mythological tinted battle between these two clans fighting over who uh, was going to, to control the empire. And uh, Huichi tells specifically the story from this this war between the two sides uh, known as the Ginpei War based on the the name comes from the kanji first kanji of each of the clan names uh, but Hoichi uh, is telling the story of the battle of Danno Ura which was a decisive sea battle where the Heike clan uh, was completely routed and the emperor and his court decided to 
or were drowned, the infant emperor at the, the choice of his grandmother and the rest of the court uh, drowned themselves rather than be uh, captured or killed by the Genji clan. Uh, as Hoichi is telling this, we uh, the visuals for this are a combination of these elaborate paintings, uh, which were made for the film from, as far as I can tell, they're not uh, period paintings. Uh, but these these beautiful paintings intercut with actual uh, live actors on boats reenacting this war. Uh, and uh, we get some crazy battle scenes. Uh, some of these uh, characters are kind of well-known uh, mythological characters. Uh, the uh, the warrior one warrior uh, Noritsune tries to get in a fight with the general of the Genji clan, but the general uh, refuses to be pinned down and refuses to fight. And frustrated Noritsune goes out by throwing his armor into the water and posing dramatically as he's shot down by arrows. And the, uh, the Heike general uh, notably uh, drowns himself by grabbing an anchor and following along the emperor. Following the telling of this story, we learn that uh, Hoichi is staying at a Buddhist temple, and as the priests leave to attend a funerary service, they leave uh, Hoichi to, to watch through the night, and on a porch, Hoichi is approached by the ghost of a samurai, who, uh, unbeknownst to Hoichi, uh, just appears to Hoichi as a man because he is blind. Uh the samurai tells him that he wants him to play for his lord, and Hoichi, agreeing that his lord must be a powerful man, decides to uh, go with the samurai and uh, uh, follow the request. Following this, we get my what I is my uh, my favorite visual sequence to the entire thing as Hoichi walks with the samurai through a bunch of scenes kind of walking into this grand court in the afterlife. Yeah. Uh, sets in this part are awesome. Yeah. And the, the use of color is great. I want to mm -hmm. circle back to that in a minute. Um, but, uh, the next day, uh, one of the temple attendants, uh, Yasuku, uh, notably played by, uh, uh, everybody's favorite Kuni Tanaka. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, this 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 part in particular is stacked with a actors that I know and love. Yeah, uh, it's stacked with Tohoyoro alums. <laughs> yeah, uh, Kuni Tanaka plays Yasuku, and the head priest is played by Takashi Shimura. He sure uh, is. Yeah, who's in everything, uh, and is great as usual. But uh, but I really uh, really like Kuni Tanaka in this. But uh, Yasuku is startled seeing Hoichi because he's not expecting anybody to be there and, and kind of stumbles over himself in a great moment of physical comedy. Uh, but uh, asks Hoichi where he was all night and, and gives him breakfast, but Hoichi will tell no one where he's been. Um, a bunch of fishermen find a dead body and uh, have a funeral service for it. Uh, and then the next night, uh, Hoichi... Uh, continues to go out, but refuses to tell anyone 
what he's doing uh, until eventually he goes out one night in the rain where Yasuku and the other temple attendant, Matsuzo, uh, rush out to find him and find Hoichi playing music in a graveyard. Where in to Hoichi, he is seated in front of uh, all of these uh, seated in this court. He has actually been playing music in a graveyard to for these uh, uh, Heike clan uh, samurai this entire time. And uh, the head priest discovers this and uh, decides to protect Hoichi by covering him head to toe in the Heart Sutra so that the ghosts will show up to find him, but they won't see him at all. Uh, it, but he tells him no matter what he hears, he has to, to stay there and refuse to go. Uh, only, and, and we have an interesting scene of them uh, writing the Heart Sutra all over Hoichi's body head to toe but forgetting his ears. So as Hoichi is sitting there on the porch, the, uh, the ghost shows up to find Hoichi and to the ghost dismay discovers that Hoichi is, uh, is completely gone except for his ears, which is the only part that he can see. And the, the, this ghost of the samurai decides that he can't come back to his Lord empty handed. So he might as well take what remains of Hoichi as proof to his lord that uh, the rest of him is gone, and in a uh, pretty brutal scene, just rips Hoichi's ears off. Yeah, it's rough. Um, but uh, the the priests and attendants find Hoichi in the morning, uh, maybe not well, but alive. And following this, Hoichi's fame spreads until uh, a, a living lord and his court. Uh, after refusing to to leave many times, the the court just shows up at the temple, and Hoichi uh, declares that as long as he is he is alive, he must continue to play the biwa, and plays for this court. And uh, that's that's the end. Um, as you said earlier, I think this is some of the. The, the best set design is so otherworldly and cool. It was also probably where they were spending over 300,000 yen a day on uh, dry ice for the smoke and all these scenes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, those battle scenes were, um, like the period scenes were all really elaborate um, and uh, a lot longer than I would have expected them to be. Yeah, they take up a good bit, which like... I like those scenes a whole lot, but it's it's weird that it focuses so much on that when that it's not part of the kind of supernatural background of this. It's it's just historical context. I will yeah, say I, that I was ready for that to just be what the segment was. Uh, I was kind of like, oh, that's interesting. This is going to be <laughs> this segment's going to be told through narration, and we're going to see some like kind of stylized battles, uh, sea battles, but. Um, I guess, I guess it does set up a sort of like emotional tone for the sort of like sorrow of the ghosts or whatever. Yeah. yeah. That, that's something else that th- these scenes are another thing where the audio is very disconnected because it's Hoichi's singing of this tale and his playing of the Biwa, which is itself both stark and beautiful, but there's no audio from these battles going on. We are just watching these visuals under under the raw telling of them. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, like I said, I, I really like those scenes uh, with a little bit of context of who those some of those people are. It's it's pretty cool. Uh, Tomomori, the general of the Heike side, was uh, in in most versions of the story did uh, did grab an anchor and tie it around his foot to to, to ensure that he drowned alongside the emperor. Uh, Noritsune, the other the other warrior that is trying to fight the opposing general. Uh, in in other versions of the tale, he uh, isn't shot by arrows, but also drowns himself alongside the emperor. But uh, as he goes out, grabs two Genji warriors, one under each arm, as he jumps into the ocean. It might be because of the historical background, but this uh, out of the four um, seemed like the most fleshed out story, um, the most complete story to me. Yeah, it, it's very long too. Um, that might be part of it. <laughs> like an hour long, just this one segment, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, I'll also note this is the this is the segment that they filmed last, uh, and the one that he had to take out a personal loan to to finish up. <laughs> um, Worth it. Yeah. yeah, it definitely seems the most expensive of the four. Yeah. Yeah, the totally. fact that they had to to build whatever like indoor body of water to film all of those boat scenes is just crazy. Yeah, I mean, Scott said this at the beginning, and I'll just go ahead and say this is my favorite of the four segments as well. So I just I can't even imagine what the movie that the movie would be what it is without this segment being what it is. Yeah. Which, yeah, I feel this could have been uh, it stands. Uh, I, I don't think the other segments stand on their own as any kind of like this is the movie. But mm-hmm. this if they had padded it out just a little more with some something else they could have just released this by itself i feel yes and had it stand on its own um but yeah there's in addition to just like these crazy like uh uh geki like period fights and stuff uh there's so much going on in this because as i said uh, uh kuni tanaka as yasuku does a gr- such great comedic turns uh, especially with how expressive and goofy his face is. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, you know, uh, we mentioned Kunie Tanaka uh, in the Truck Yara episode, but I don't know that we've actually covered a movie that he's been in yet. I, I guess that's we true. Have. Yeah, um, and he's hmm. he's so great. Like, he's very, for being so kind of goofy and, and weird looking and stuff, he's very, like, charismatic and kind of demands your attention, I feel like. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I I guess I just got uh, confused because uh, Battles Without Honor and Humanity is is on our list at some mm. point. Yeah, yeah, um, and and yeah, like I said, we we mentioned him in the uh, in the uh, Truck Yaro episode, and anybody any uh, crossover listeners from the One Piece podcast surely know him as the uh, I can't remember which admiral he is. Uh, Kizaru. Kizaru, yeah. aka um, Borsellino. Yeah. after his character in Truck Um but yeah, he I'm I'm I didn't uh, copy down who the actor for Matsuzo, the other temple attendant, is. But there's uh, they uh, have some great moments of just being cowards, afraid of the spirits, and afraid of lightning when they're sent to go find Hoichi. Uh, them getting frightened by the willow wisps as they get closer into the graveyard. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like all those comedic moments are are really good and they play it up really well. Oh yeah, the Willow Wisps. I thought that was actually a pretty cool effect for the time. 
Yeah, because uh, they start in their lamps, right? And then they mm -hmm. they pull them out. Yeah. Um, the, the special effects in this are, uh, the, the sets are way more impressive, but they're, the effects are proficient for what they need them to be. Like the, the will-o'-wisps are clearly fires on like fishing lines, but they, they look really cool and everything else is so surreal. You don't really think about in the moment. Like this is very clearly, uh, a, a, a easy effect or the, Earlier in uh, Kurokami, the transitions from uh, as the the wife decays are just a series of kind of like uh, fades between different shots, but uh, but they all are functional and work really well. Yeah. Um, I also just love a lot of the uh, the the Biwa music. I like I said it it that instrument itself and the style of singing that uh, Biwa Hoshis use is uh very interesting to me and yeah you know he's such a like beautiful in a way spoken uh he sounds completely different when he's performing he sounds like a different person yeah it's a really interesting uh thing Might uh, be. weirdly it's, it's kind <laughs> of like it reminded me a little bit of uh, michael jackson hmm. with how kind of soft-spoken he is in his speaking voice and very very kind of quiet and timid but both the way he sings and the way he kind of attacks his instrument is very aggressive when he's actually singing and telling the story. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this, and uh, to, to go back for a second, just the, as he's being escorted into this, uh, into the, the court to perform these series, when the, the gates open up and it's just this like, series of columns out into blue nothingness. Yeah. That was like, Oh man, this is amazing. Uh, and it looks really cool. There's also the interesting scene where the, he's playing in front of the court and suddenly everything changes. And instead of being in their courtly garb, they, the entire court is suddenly back in, uh, the, the, uh, the warrior clothes that they all died in. Sitting yeah, here observing this retelling, and yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, the backgrounds and that are flames, so it kind of makes you feel more like that's hell or something. Yeah, it's so fascinating, and like even if you can't make it through the rest of this movie, if if anybody listening has not watched it, you really need to see this segment just to how see like the craft that goes into all of this. Yeah, and it really kind of like transports me to like a great headspace. Uh, yeah, so 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 much so <laughs> that that sort of meditative feeling that it puts me in almost feels betrayed uh, by the violence uh, of him having his ears ripped off. But um, but I feel like it comes kind of back around to that uh, kind of uh, meditative feeling towards the end. Uh, Which yeah, I think that that style of music and storytelling is meant to be kind of meditative. The mm -hmm. the weird tonality of it, and uh, and like I said, this it's so interesting because it goes between like serious and comedic a lot, and it's super serious when Hoichi is is getting his ears ripped off, uh, but then as once that's over the next day when uh, the head priest and his subordinate are talking about it, they're like, yeah, well we forgot his ears, but he's alive. That's fine. Right. <laughs> it's just yeah, like, Oh, well, humor is kind of like 
my bad. He he kind of yeah. has a smirk uh, on his face when he's like, "Whoops." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and but but I really like that final point when uh, uh, Kenya Tanaka, uh, Yasuku, and uh, Matsuzo are there trying to tell uh, Hoichi that like tell these people you can't play. What if, what if this is a trick from ghosts and, and Hoichi's, even though he has lost his ears because of this, uh, is just resolute. Like, no, this is, this is what I do and I must do it. Mm-hmm. And it's just a, a really fun way to go out hearing him start telling that story again. Yeah, totally. Uh, and finally we get back, uh, we, uh, see our framing device. These, the beginning and ending of these stories have had a, uh, a narrator the whole time. And now we see this narrator, uh, uh, the, the title of the story is Chawan Nonaka, which, uh, the title card is, uh, in a cup of tea. Chawan Nonaka, uh, I think just means in a cup. Um, but the narrator is actually a writer who's been uh, uh, compiling all of these stories uh, uh, in a house. And he begins talking about a story that a ghost story that uh, has no ending and speculates as to the reasons why and uh, different possibilities. And then starts telling the story. Uh, Kanai, a samurai uh, working as a guard for his Lord, uh, gets up as uh, the Lord is, is visiting in a city, uh, gets up from guard duty to go get a drink of water. And uh, when he pours the water, he sees the face of another man in his cup. Uh, first, he throws out the water, pours another, and then the man is still there. Uh, he gets angry, throws the cup, grabs a different cup and pours it. And the, the man is still there. And each time the man is more clear in the in the cup until finally he uh he gets fed up with this weirdness and just drinks the cup uh, in a fit of rage um then uh, then later while on guard duty the man that Kanai saw in his cup just appears uh out of nowhere calling himself uh, Shikabu Hainai and Kanai is, is outraged, outraged, but refuses to admit that he is the man that he saw in the cup uh, and tries to attack him repeatedly but can't land a hit as uh, Hainai disappears all over the place until he manages to actually catch him in the arm and wound him, uh, at which point Hainai disappears and uh, Kanai calls an alarm, but none of his colleagues believe him because he said this man just appeared and then walked through a wall. Uh, so they, they think he's, uh, he's, uh, just, uh, maybe working too hard and needs rest. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so later he's, uh, kind of, is relaxing at home when, uh, uh, late at night when three men arrive, uh, asking to speak with him. And as, uh, he's, he's wary of this. And as he goes to the door, he grabs his swords and is, uh, gets angry and at the door these there are three new samurai who introduce themselves claiming to res- re- represent Hainai and yes. giving word what Huey, Dewey and Louie <laughs> yeah they, they each give their names and they have these kind of like weird looks to them and are all color coded um, which yeah this is the most visually subdued I think of, of the three there's uh, aside from the color coding of those three samurai there's not a lot of like very stark, crazy visuals here. True. Um, 
but uh, the, these three samurai are giving word that Hainai is their master and he will return to pay his respects and then avenge himself against Kanai. Uh, this sets Kanai immediately to attack them. And as he, uh, he swipes with his katana, uh, once again, these three men uh, continue to disappear at every turn every time he tries to actually attack them. Uh, eventually grabs a spear from above his doorway uh, chases them down and uh, continually gets is uh, gets more insane as he at- futilely attacks these men until he finally attacks and kills each of them, only to have all three of them reappear surrounding him. And uh, he, this is another one of those scenes where it's it's uh, the transition is is starts off subtle but uh, goes very quick where the more he is fighting against these men, the paler and, and more distraught his, uh, his face and uh, face looks and his hair becomes more wild mm-hmm. and slightly grayed until finally he is, he is laughing with madness and the author suddenly states that this is where the story ends and speculates on how, you could possibly end this story, but decides that it's more interesting if it's left unfinished because that way uh, you can, whatever you imagine is going to be more interesting. Uh, just then back in the, uh, in the, I guess, quote, real world, uh, the author's publisher shows up looking for him. Uh, the woman lets him inside saying that he's been writing all day, but doesn't know where he went. And as uh, as the publisher is thumbing through the papers, reading what he's been up to, the woman screams. And as the publisher uh, investigates, she points at a container of water and the publisher looks in, screams and flees. And we are left to see the writer has uh, himself become trapped inside this water vessel. (laughs) So we get an answer to why wasn't the story <laughs> finished rather than what is yeah. the end of the story? Yeah. Um, the end of the story, I would have, I was going to assume that uh, he wakes up from his stupor and he killed the entirety of, of everybody in the castle. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah. Like in his, like he wasn't really fighting, you know, those three guys he was fight. He was just slaughtering everyone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so like a very old man Logan type situation, which it's very fascinating like because like like the story says, it's more interesting if you imagine it yourself. But then it says that, and then gives us an actual like weird Twilight Zone twist ending. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't really follow from anything. Like it's it's kind like it's almost comical. Yeah, no, this um, this, this movie totally ends on a punchline. Like it yeah. does. <laughs> I usually hate endings that are are like, oh yeah, you just make up your own ending. It's however you perceive it. I I th- always think that endings like that are cop outs. Mm-hmm. Um, but this did just seem like an episode of the Twilight Zone, so I was okay with it. Yeah, it's um, a fun concept, you know. Yeah. Which and and once again, I think this is the shortest of all the the stories and. Uh, ending on a comedic punchline after a, a very short story. I don't think it, this really adds that much short of giving a kind of, um, the explanation of the framing device, but, uh, it's, I mean, it's, I would, I, I guess I would call it benign and a, a little amusing. 
Uh, yeah, it's not a particularly strong section, but you know, it, I like the experimental nature of its inclusion. You know? mm-hmm. uh, I also find I can't remember whether it's at the beginning of the story or at the end of it. I think it's at the end of it when the author says uh, the way he describes it, we're left up to the imagination uh, or left up to our own imagination to decide what happens when a man swallows another man's soul. And that kind of uh, that description of drinking him drinking the man in the cup uh, was incredibly evocative to me. And even though I don't feel like the story pays it off as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it makes you wonder where it was going because it's yeah. like, you, there's questions of who this person was. And if that guy does, truly doesn't recognize him, why would he be haunting him? You know, uh, who knows? <laughs> um. But yeah, the uh, I I I do really appreciate the like look of madness on Kanai's face. I did not recognize the actor as being from anything else I've seen, mm-hmm. uh, but just like his his mad laughing at the end there with the with his frazzled hair and just kind of like wild eyed look was hor- like that is effectively horrifying, uh, in a way that the rest of the segment isn't. And uh, that concludes uh, Kaidan. Uh, the I don't think, like I said, these are a little uneven, both in length and, and quality. But overall, this movie, like every aspect of it, from the performances, the the visuals, and the music, is just like super fascinating and incredibly unique. It uh, it while not not reaching nearly as far into being as stylized and surreal as something like, uh, uh, movies. It's pointed in that direction in a very fascinating way. Um, that I appreciate a lot with the, the, the crazy set design and, and use of unusual visuals and things. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or the movie we covered, uh, October last year house, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It was sort of like a, a much less weird version of House. <laughs> I was I was sort of actually <laughs> I was disappointed that it wasn't as weird as House, but then again, few movies are. <laughs> yeah, this I, I I feel like this was uh, like matched it for for visuals and being that strange, but the actual storytelling in it is far less surreal. Mm-hmm. And and I think that like I said, uh, the the screenwriter chose these stories to have, even though it's these. Uh, the film itself is kind of surreal. The stories it's telling are uh, kind of grounded. And as I said, speak a little to uh, humanity and, uh, and like things that, that, that we can relate to, even though they're supernatural. Yeah. Um, did anybody have uh, anything else they wanted to, to point out or any favorite aspects of the film? Uh, well, you know, um, as a, basically came out my, my favorite two sections are the two in the middle but um you know as far as a favorite part of the film hoichi the earless probably edges out uh the woman of the snow uh, as my favorite section and particularly that sequence um kind of starting with uh hoichi's performance uh for the whole court through the monks covering him with the sutra is mm. just like really you know uh to use a sort of hyperbolic word transcendent you know it's it's a very like 
you know, amazing sequence that really put, you know, uh, puts me in a, in another place. And, um, there's, I love how there's several shots that are from behind Hoichi as he's performing. So you can really see as things change. So you see kind of the court as he, he's first arrives through like when their clothing changes and they're in the sort of more fiery, uh, location, and then eventually there's that shot of him performing in front of the graves uh, that just, like, is very haunting um, and, and and beautiful looking. And then that sequence with the monks covering him with the sutra has this sort of, like, steady chanting in the background as it sort of, like, uh, closes up on them, you know, writing kanji or whatever uh, down his body and stuff. Uh, it's really, like, transportative as well. Uh, so, yeah. yeah the uh, the the scene of hit, of them writing the sutras on him uh, is what most of the 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 materials that this was marketed with in the West, as far as I know, were using. Mm-hmm. Uh, both kind of the picture and the trailers featured that heavily, which I think leaned into the uh, the kind of alien nature to a Western audience. Yeah. Which uh, to to circle back around, or, or actually, I'll I'll save that for after this. Uh, but uh, Alex, did you have anything you wanted to point out? Um, nothing that I hadn't already covered. Um, okay. I liked how it was structured. Actually, it was I I ended up watching it in like three parts. Um, I didn't I didn't sit through it uh, all the way through. So I I felt that uh, sitting through it in segments gave me uh it was as much easier for me to process the film as uh as uh, a few separate vignettes mm-hmm. um so you know i kind of looked at it as a series of of, of episodes of <laughs> of the uh the japanese uh version of the twilight zone yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, I was I was fully uh, planning on watching it in two segments, and then by the time I got past the Yukiona part, I was like, "I'll just watch the next segment," not realizing that that was going to cover almost the whole rest of the movie. Yeah, and then I was, you know, not you know, I was still totally on board. Like it 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 gripped me, uh, but like, but then yeah, by the time that that was over, it was like, "Oh, I've got like ten or fifteen minutes left." Yeah, I might as well just like. <laughs> watch the rest of this um Um, the thing i was going to circle back around to is that uh this is a very interesting work because as i said uh lefkadio hearn is was a westerner who went to japan to uh learn and write about these myths and uh there's there's been accusations of kind of uh uh from him of fetishization of Japanese culture, which he did fully immerse himself in. He, he became a Japanese citizen, had a, took a a Japanese wife, but his desire was to kind of, uh, expand the exposure to these stories, both to, uh, kind of preserve and put in writing an oral tradition that had not been written down within Japan, but also to, uh, present these, these myths to the West in a, a uh, format palatable to Western audiences, which this is, uh, 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 
the director Kobayashi talks about how the, this film was was popular in Japan, but it was incredibly popular in foreign markets. So I think that even though this is uh, a a stories rendered for Western audiences and then back into Japan, I think it remains a very uh, a good and interesting kind of glimpse into uh, Japanese folklore that uh, that is not is free of context and is uh, easily digestible for other audiences. So I uh, really advise anybody listening to this who hasn't watched it to take a look. All right. Yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, moving on to next month, even though uh, uh, we'll be past Halloween, uh, we're not out of the woods as far as uh, scary things and monsters go. So I'll let uh, Joey introduce November's movie. Yeah. Uh, in November, we will be uh, mixing kaiju and body horror with uh, Shin Godzilla. Um this is the 2016 Godzilla movie uh, directed by Hideaki Anno, whose name I always stumble on, uh, best known for Neon Genesis Evangelion. And uh, this is, uh, you know, our, is a cool movie to cover because our first episode uh, of our podcast was the original Godzilla, and now we're skipping all the way to the most recent one. <laughs> um this was suggested by a listener, uh, William, who's a friend of the show, who's helped out with some translation stuff in the past. And, um, you know, you might say, Joey, this is a movie you would have covered already. <laughs> or anyway, <laughs> you know, but um, I, I would answer that, um, yeah, but maybe not quite so soon. You know, uh, if left to my own devices, I might have uh, chosen something kind of uh, something closer to the um, the original to, to follow up with or maybe something from like the 70s or something. Uh, but William, pretty much right after it came out, I think he's in Japan, so he... Maybe I think he saw it in theaters there and was like, "Oh, you guys got to cover this uh, when it, when when you can." So um, it, we've we've moved it up the pipeline, and um, it's a it's a it's a pretty odd one. Uh, and frankly, I'm not quite sure how I'm going to tackle it exactly as far as like uh, de- uh, describing what goes on in the movie because a lot of it is kind of like uh, you know um, centered around bureaucracy and stuff like that, uh, but. Um, I'm looking forward to discussing it with you guys for sure. I'm excited to see it. I, I intended to watch it when it uh, first came out in the U.S. and ended up just not doing so. This, so this will be my first exposure to it. I'm incredibly excited. Yeah, Sam. I really like the. Uh, I know that the design for Godzilla this time around got a lot of flack, but I actually liked it and I thought it made sense given the story. Um, yeah, it's very effective within the mm-hmm. film. Uh, so yeah, that's next month. Uh, in the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at VriskaChat, V-R-I-S-K-A-C-H-A-T. Uh, I don't have a lot going on right now, but, uh, yell at me on there. Uh, uh, let me know how you like this or any other movies that, uh, that you think I might like. Uh, Joey, where can people find you? Uh, they can find me uh, on Twitter at Joey Weiser or joeyweiser.tumblr.com. Um, and Merman 1 through 5 are out now. That's my graphic novel series, and that's the entire series. Uh, so you can get the whole thing now. The softcover edition of Volume 3 just hit stores in September, and Volume 4's softcover is coming in February. So let your comic shop know if you want that um, now, because those pre-orders really do help. Um, 
determine how many are printed and shipped and, and all that stuff. So um, uh, keep an eye out for that. Uh, later this month, October 28th, is Halloween Comic Fest, uh, which is a thing all around the country uh, that you can go out and get some cool uh, Halloween special comics. And I'll be at Richard's Comics in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, so uh, signing and doing sketches and stuff. Uh, so if anybody is in the Greenville area, please uh, stop by and say hello. And, you know, keep keep your eye on my social media for specifics about that and other events and things. Um, and, oh, yes. And you can find me on social media at dude exclamation all one word. Um, and uh, if you're going to be in the Philly area, October 21st, I believe that's the date. It's the Saturday. Um, I will be in Philly with Super Art Fight at the Boot and Saddle, which is a bar venue. And I'm looking forward to playing a new town. Um, and if you're on Twitter, uh, you should follow an account called Weeb Simpsons. Uh, I hear it's <laughs> super funny and, uh, run by a very, very cool and funny person. Uh, if you like the Simpsons and if you like anime and if <laughs> you're into, uh, really dumb spec scripts, uh, that marry those two together, give it a checkout. I'm sure, uh, uh, that a tweet or two have been retweeted your way regardless yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh joey um and lastly i would like uh you to follow our toho yaro accounts there, there's one on twitter at toho yaro uh, you can like us on facebook as well uh toho yaro there as well and uh email toho yaro at gmail.com and rate review and subscribe on apple podcasts or wherever you get podcasts all right. Thanks, everybody. See you next month. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.